Shanna Applequine is the author of Designers and Dragons, the history of role-playing industry told one company at a time, which is a really good uh, tagline there. These stories were published in a four-book series covering the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. They're available electronically on DriveThruRPG, audiobooks on Audible, and some editions are still in print, although I found it, it's pretty getting hard to, uh, it's hard, harder to get nowadays. If there's one person who knows the history of role-playing game industry, it is Shannon Applecline, who is joining us from beautiful Hawaii. Shannon, welcome. Thank you very much, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Well, I have to say that, uh, and I don't know if you've seen my own personal journey, but you actually played a big role in me kind of getting caught up on all the stuff that I had missed over the years, because there, I did the, like a big dropout uh, when I had kids and, you know, pursued careers and that kind of thing. But when I discovered your books, and actually it took me a while to hunt them down, but it really brought me up to speed on what was uh, happening within the RPG world. Well, that's great to hear. You might be surprised to hear that uh, I was writing the books originally to kind of get caught up to speed myself. Uh, I started working for Chaosium in the late 90s, and I stopped having any money when I started working for Chaosium, which is pretty much how the whole role-playing industry works. Uh, and so beforehand, I'd been uh, interested in buying everything from uh, the Traveler publisher at the time, who was Imperium Games. Stopped buying things, and uh, five, ten years later, I looked, they weren't around anymore, and I said, what happened to them? And so I started researching them, finding out what was going on, and catching up myself. And then because I'm a writer, I decided I had to write it down too. So it was kind of the same journey for me in some ways, um, getting caught up after I worked in the industry for a bit and then stepped back for a bit. Well, let's maybe back up to like, where did you actually start being involved with role-playing games in the first place? How was your journey? Uh, you know, everybody's kind of got that first moment where they discovered role-playing games. Maybe you can bring us up to speed on how that happened. Sure. Um, I somehow or another found out about Dungeons and Dragons. Um, if I had to guess, I might say I saw it advertised in a comic book, but I'm not sure. Uh, but I started uh, hinting to my father that perhaps I would like to receive Dungeons and Dragons as a birthday present. And he, uh, being the greatest father in the world, uh, bought me Dungeons and Dragons for my birthday or Christmas. I'm not really sure which. And since I didn't have anyone to play it, learned the rules as best as he could. He found the combat very confusing and put together a dungeon and ran it for me. Um, <laughs> and I should say he is not a game player. He doesn't like games. And so this was like the ultimate sacrifice. And, you know, he, he still didn't understand the combat rules. And so he kind of fell back on the, the type of uh, thing you might do in an adventure game, uh, which we'd both played these uh, text-based adventure games. And so like when there was a room of skeletons that needed to be defeated, there were rocks handily on the floor that you could pick up and throw at them to knock them down if you knew how. But that's how I got started was with Dungeons and Dragons uh, run by my father. And uh, you mentioned that I'm in uh, beautiful Hawaii here. I actually moved uh, almost a year and a half ago. And one of the main reasons was so that we could be close to them. They're about a mile over uh, from where our house is, my dad and uh, my stepmom are. Oh, wow. That's ideal. And where were you before you moved to Hawaii? Uh, Berkeley, California. Lived in the uh, uh, California Bay Area almost my entire life and in Berkeley for the 30 years before we moved up here. Wow. And then maybe that brings me to, uh, I know like you had mentioned about your your time with Chaosium and was that while you were in the Bay Area? Yeah, I was uh, working for Chaosium from 1996 to 98, something like that. Uh, I went to school at Cal, uh, and when I was at Cal, I got more and more involved with Chaosium's games, uh, RuneQuest in particular, uh, but I also learned about Call of Cthulhu. I uh, increased my interest in Stormbringer, and so I started thinking I'd really like to work for them. Uh, I didn't know at the time that uh, role-playing companies tended to be so small that they had no staff, and uh, thinking you could work for anyone other than you know TSR at the time, uh, if you were in the Midwest, was a pipe dream. Um, started writing for them. I started running an online magazine called uh, the Chiasium Digest, which I ran for, seems like forever, but I think it was only three or four years. Uh, and in doing all of these things, I, I came to their attention. I also got a little uh, experience writing for uh, White Wolf and a few other people. 
Um, and uh, then this whole thing called uh, CCGs came about and uh, they put out their own, which was the Mythos collectible card game. And they suddenly had piles of money that they didn't know what to do with. And so they increased their staff from, I think it was about seven people before the CCGs to about 20. And uh, my friend Eric Rowe got hired on. And uh, then between my connection to him and my connection having written books, they hired me on too. And so I stayed there through the height of the CCG craze. Uh, I saw them literally lay off every single paid employee except me uh, and decided that it was starting to make me a little nervous. And so after a couple of years, moved back into the computer industry where I've spent most of my professional career. Wow. And that... And I, I will touch on that a little bit later, but it's uh, one thing that I've kind of noticed while reading your books is that the boom and the bust of the industry, which I'm going to pick your brain on a little bit later when we go into some deeper dives on topics. And, oh, we have our first cat. I think I mentioned to you that uh, I've got a cat roaming around and you got a cat roaming around. And if one of them showed up, I was going to do a giveaway. So I'll, I'll figure that out <laughs> by yeah. the end. I got a t-shirt. So anybody that... Uh, makes a comment i might uh, i'll send them a, a t-shirt based upon how many cats show up yeah this is this is callisto here uh she hates it when i talk to computers and and has to see what's going on uh she gets very upset at uh, uh our digital assistant whose name i cannot mention unless she uh start talking to and <laughs> definitely when i'm zooming as well yeah they uh like your full attention don't they mm-hmm and so one of the, going back to your time um, there in Chaosium, you also did the trade talk. Is that kind of all part of the, like that towards the tail end of your time there? Yeah, um, trade talk was a uh, Gloranthin slash Chaosium fanzine that was run out of Germany by the um, German RuneQuest Society, later the Chaos Society. Uh, same people who do the tentacles conventions out there every year and now... Uh, I forget what the name of the current one is. Um, and so I, I was a member of the RuneQuest fandom, I think even before I was working at Chaosium, it was a real, it, it was an invigorating, exciting community feeling fandom. There were these people from all over the world that were all writing about this rule system and more importantly, this world, which was Glorantha. I got to meet people in Britain. I, I went to Britain for a convention. I got to meet people all over the US and in, Canada. And I think we really felt like a community uh, to a certain extent, because the official publisher of RuneQuest at that time was Avalon Hill, not Chaosium. Um, they totally let the game down. They, you know, had a brief renaissance and then they stopped publishing it. And so we fans were the only one that could do anything. And uh, I think that drew us together and Greg Stafford regularly attended the conventions and Sandy Peterson, and it, it was just very exciting. I think it was probably the uh, closest I've ever felt to uh, a community in, in role-playing. So I wasn't exactly that I was doing that because I was working at Chaosium. It was just part of the same interest that made me want to work at Chaosium. And I'm working on that. Uh, I was working on that before we started talking about half an hour ago because I'm um, uh, working on a new book for RuneQuest because uh, they have uh, Chaosium has RuneQuest back and the people running Chaosium now are some of the leaders of the uh, fan community from the uh, 90s. It's a very exciting time for the game. Oh, wow. And you mentioned a couple of like major, major players in the industry of Greg Stafford and Sandy um, Peterson. And I know that you got Greg to do the forward of your very first, uh, the 70s book, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you got to work with him? I did. So during the two years at Chaosium, we were in a little kind of expanded warehouse space out in the bad side of Oakland, not the worst side of Oakland, but the bad side of Oakland. So his office was about 10 feet from mine. Uh, I was mostly working on Call of Cthulhu because like I said, we didn't have uh, uh, RuneQuest at the time. Pendragon wasn't making enough money. Nephilim wasn't making enough money. So most of what we were doing was either Call of Cthulhu or the Mythos uh, card game. Um, but, you know, I don't know, every week, every month, so long ago, after work, I'd sometimes wander into Greg's office and we'd talk about RuneQuest stuff. Uh, my friend Eric and I ran a convention, RuneQuest Con 2. Um, 
I think that was probably just before I was working there, but, you know, that was the first time I remember sitting in his office and talking. And uh, that was also when I started working on the uh, elves of Glorantha. Uh, Greg and I would, you know, talk about ways to expand their mythology. He gave me a lot of material that Ken Rolston had put together for a book that Avalon Hill never published on the elves of Dorister. Um, it was just cool. Greg was a uh, very imaginative person. You could just see sometimes when a, a new idea had come into his head and suddenly he was telling you about it like that is how it had always been. Wow, that would, I mean, and I think in some of the stories I've read, like you got to just pick his brain and kind of just uh, see where things were going and what was bubbling up. His brain and his file cabinet, which was uh, <laughs> just, just as important. I still have some uh, uh, spiral bound books that I have made of some of his uh, material to use for, for my own work that I'm still doing. Oh, wow. Well, and then, so you, you left that work and at what point uh, did the inspiration for designers and dragons take place? Like how did, how did that start? Uh, I think it was uh, 2005. Um, so I was working at Scotus Tech, which was an online game company. Um, and uh, Scotus Tech acquired RPGNet, uh, which uh, was the top independent uh, role-playing site on the internet. And I became the editor-in-chief of it, uh, which meant as much as anything that I kind of oversaw it, uh, made sure that if any of our uh, volunteer staff had questions, uh, I, I could address them if there was anything that they needed dealt with, which usually meant someone was threatening things legally, I could deal with it. But I also did the programming. So uh, we had uh, original code that Sandy Antunis had done 1995 to 2000 or so, and it needed to be refreshed. So 2005, uh, we went to Gen Con. Um, and this is when I started thinking more about the industry after being kind of uh, out of it for a few years af after my uh, years at Chaosium. And I came back from that Gen Con and I said, I'd really like to put together an index of uh, role-playing products. Um, and part of what I wanted to do was discover what was going on with uh, some of these companies that I'd missed out on, like the Imperial Games that I mentioned. And some of it was that I uh, wanted to uh, expand on the last really good index of uh, role-playing books, which had been out in 1990 or so. I actually got right here because I still use a reference. That's Heroic Worlds by Lawrence Schick. Um, and so I started doing this uh, programming, started coding this, and this kind of raised these questions of what happened to these companies. And so that was what directly led me to starting to write these histories. Published them on uh, RPGNet. And uh, after I'd done uh, several of them, probably, uh, I started getting some queries from people saying, hey, you should publish this. And uh, eventually a publisher and I came together and uh, agreed, hey, we were going to publish this. And I rather frantically worked to um, finished the original book that was eventually published by Mongoose. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, I published it in the expanded four book farm with uh, Evil Hat. Okay, so the Mongoose one, I've heard, I've seen references to the uh, big black book. Um, yeah. Did they have, did you have all four in that book for the Mongoose one? Uh, no, not exactly. I don't seem to have my copy here anyway. Uh, a year and a half later, and we're still not unpacked, but that's been partially pandemic related. <laughs> yeah. um, the original uh, Mongoose book was shorter. Uh, I, I used to know the page counts off the top of my head. Uh, the uh, four book series are like half a million words. Uh, the Mongoose book was two thirds of that, half of that. I'm not really sure. It was a really hefty, dense, big book, uh, but it did get considerably expanded. What I did was I split it by the decades. Uh, and I looked at each decade and said, uh, how much more do I need to add to expand it out to about 120,000 words, which would make it a, a book. And as I recall, the 80s book was just about done. I, I had almost everything in the 80s I, I needed. And the 70s, I added like four short histories, the 90s, I don't know, and the odd odds was mostly new. And I can't even imagine like i mean you're talking in the millions of words here um that just That's the commitment half a million right now half million but the commitment it takes to do that i mean uh 
I would say most game designers are maybe notoriously kind of uh, procrastinators. And so how did you sit down and actually delve into it and produce that much? I, I think it varies from person to person. I certainly know people in the industry who write phenomenal amounts of content. When I was writing the uh, histories, for example, I was stunned by Stephen Long, who uh, used to do work for Hero Games in its uh, last incarnation, who would regularly write, I think it was over a million words a year, but I'm, I'm not sure anymore. It's been a while since I looked at the numbers. Uh, how I did it is I would work all day for Skotos, I would eat dinner, uh, and then I would go work all night on Designers and Dragons uh, until an hour before bed when I needed to stop so I could actually sleep that night. Um, I, I look back and to a certain extent, I have no idea how I did all of that work, but I, I do remember that, that largely being the pattern that I, I would fairly regularly spend mm, four to six hours in the evening after my regular workday. Um, and I, I really don't know how I put together some of them because my memory of uh, the structures that I would research and often write uh, a history within the same day or two. Um, not the procedure I have now, but I'm, I'm probably doing a lot deeper work right now, which we'll probably get to. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely touch on your next steps on uh, your uh, journey and uh, your uh, knowledge of the industry. But I was just curious also, like how much research do you do for this? Uh, do you have like banker boxes full of odds and ends or like, how do you, how do you get all this information in one spot? Uh, I, I do, I do have boxes full of odds and ends. Um, when I was working on the original designers and dragons, uh, my primary source was uh, magazines. Um, the magazines from the seventies uh, and eighties and to a, certain extent the 90s were just phenomenal for revealing uh, what was going on at the industry at the time. Um, if sometimes I would find interviews, I would find designers notes, uh, I would find introductions in books and those would just be the gold mine that uh, really talked about how, how things work. Because I always tried very hard to make Designers and Dragons not just a listing of what companies did, but a discussion of the reasons that they did what they did and uh, kind of interlinking of trends and tropes and a look at design patterns and, and all of that. Um, I still have all of those magazines. Uh, when I moved uh, my whole collection to Hawaii, I called out a lot of stuff, but the magazines were not touched because they remain uh, critical sources. Um, as I get more and more into newer companies, the internet becomes a better and better source. Uh, archive.org uh, is one of my prime things I use because it has our web pages archived back about 25 years. And so I am often able to step back through every press release, every design note, everything that a company wrote uh, over a up to 20 or 25 year period. Um, I also feel like uh, the OSR and kind of an increasing interest in classical and traditional games has made it easier and easier to research. I feel like the research that I'm doing now is better and easier than what I was doing 10 years ago. And that's primarily due to people being more willing to say things on the internet. Mind you, uh, if it's a you know person talking about a company he used to work at 20 or 25 years ago, you have to take that with a serious grain of salt. The original sources always remain the best. Uh, the original sources still tend to be in those magazines and on other designer notes. Um, but often they will be saying things that, you know, weren't discussed or touched upon. And so you can say those are great details and you can offer them with the appropriate grain of salt. The biggest problem I have in researching nowadays is I have to decide when I am done. Um, I can uh, uh, just research forever on some of these topics. Um, there are ones where I reach the extent of what is available in the printed record or at least the printed record available to me. Um, but there are ones where I never reach that end and have to decide I have found enough details. Um, I, I have a monthly pattern right now, which again, we will probably get to. Um, and that helps keep me honest in, you know, not doing too much primarily. Well, I mean, just the, the depth of knowledge that you must have, I have to ask you, 
of writing all the books, what have you learned about the industry and the people? Is there kind of some common threads that you've seen throughout? Um, yeah, I would say so. There are, um, the thing that I learned most to address that first is I learned about the whole indie movement. Um, I was, you know, I've been gaming since 1982, I think. And so, you know, most of the things I was interested in were pretty old school. My earliest games were D&D, uh, Traveler, uh, Champions. And so, you know, I was very used to the, you know, uh, murder hobo D&D games, the, you know, punching other people in the face Champions games. And so I was a pretty traditional player. Um, but when I started working on Designers and Dragons, the odd odd, when I started expanding them for uh, Evil Hat, I learned about all of these indie games, which are just amazing. Um, one of my favorites nowadays is not even quite a role-playing game. It's a game called Microscope by Ben Robbins, which is all about laying out a uh, history of a world, a, a city, a civilization, whatever you want, in kind of a, a fractal manner where you learn a little bit and then you learn a little bit more and you learn a little bit more. It's an amazing game. Um, uh, the Burning Wheel is uh, the last game I ran in Berkeley before I, I headed out here to Hawaii. And I was just won over when I was writing Designers and Dragons by this integration of a fairly complex simulation system with, you know, a lot of stuff about personal goals and interest and, and responses. Uh, they call it their bit system, which must be beliefs, instincts, traits. Um, and so that's what I learned most. Uh, common trends, um, unshockingly, role-playing people are really bad at business. Um, there seem to be two really big trends where creative people run a business and they run it into the ground. And uh, on the other side, business people who don't really know or care about uh, role-playing games run a business and they alienate the creators and they run it into the ground. Um, so I guess you could say running it into the ground is another trend. Um, I, I, I think maybe that might be changing now because we're getting a, a second or third generation of people running companies and they tend to be the uh, people who kind of played D&D &D and other role-playing games when they were young. And many of them are now, you know, professional business people. Uh, I, I talked about Chaosium earlier and how it has uh, come under the ownership of people who, you know, were leaders in fandom in the uh, 90s. Uh, they're also, you know, great professional business people. Um, uh, you know, I know one of them's a lawyer, another of them has uh, done international business. Um, Another thing I've been looking at lately are Swedish companies, and I was uh, very surprised to see that uh, one of the Swedish companies, it's called uh, Riot Mines, is run by very professional business people, uh, and that there's all these interconnections between these Swedish companies and, you know, literally billion dollar companies often run by the same people. Paradox Interactive is the one I'm thinking of in particular, which is, you know, a billion dollar computer game company, and it has very tight connections to riot minds among others yeah well so, and i think just speaking of that like i mean i kind of find myself in the same boat of taking a long gap and look and coming back and going you know i've always had that itch that i want to scratch and uh for whatever reason i just never got to it and now i find myself with the flexibility i guess in my own career path that i can dive back in and go, this is something that I had wanted to do my whole life. And, uh, you know, I, I was always passionate about it. And now I actually feel like I can do it with all the tools and resources that are out there for indie uh, game developers now. Yeah, I feel like um, what you're expressing as your path there is a pretty general one. We're just all over the world, particularly all over the U.S., we're seeing people who grew up with role-playing games and have had very successful professional careers now coming back and, you know, talking about it. And I, I think that's a lot of what's leading to the uh, mass market popularization of role-playing games at the moment. It's, you know, these individuals who are, are willing to say, oh, there's cat number two. Uh, it's, there's these individuals who are willing to say, yes, I'm a fan of role-playing games. Uh, 
I love the fact that uh, this the people uh, working on Star Trek Discovery are running their own role-playing games now. Uh, they started it just as a way to you know, get together with their castmates during the pandemic when they couldn't otherwise. They started playing D&D over Zoom. And I, I think that's something that we're seeing repeating all over that, you know, we might've been, you know, the people that were kind of the weirdos on the outside when we were growing up, but, but now we weirdos on the outside are running the country, running the world. Well, I mean, I don't know if, maybe I shouldn't have been so, um, shy about it growing up but I remember I was I grew up in a small town in Canada and I played hockey and boy I had to kind of almost hide my love of uh, Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games because it just was not the cool thing to do and and I know you know whether it's Stranger Things or Big Bang Theory or any of those you know the pop culture has come back and and now it's like something that you don't have to hide it's like watching wrestling you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at the time you just you would never say you'd watch wrestling or play role-playing games but and now it's it's okay to say yeah I, I think probably the streaming of uh things critical role and all all the rest that's probably helped because people can watch it as a sport now without having to participate and so it feels like it's more of the uh you know media and maybe that you know segues us nicely into the popularity of 5e and do you kind of have a sense of like the halo effect of 5e's popularity and what it's doing for the whole industry or independent designers i feel like that's always been very hard to say um i think we've always felt like uh you know, if D&D is doing well, the rest of the industry is doing well. I, I certainly wrote when D&D 4E was doing very badly that I felt like it was hurting the rest of the industry. So I, I guess I would have to say the converse must be true. Um, I certainly agree that 5E is doing phenomenally, that Wizards of the Coast has done a great job of uh, uh, re-resurrecting the line. Uh, and I think they're probably finding more success than they did even during the heady D20 days. Um, it's hard to say beyond that, but, you know, my intuition, my hope is that it is making the rest of the industry do better. Uh, I think there are other things that might be more important. Kickstarter, I think is the biggest one. Uh, It's created a whole totally different world for RPG sales, but I have to assume people come into the industry through 5e and then they move on to other things. Uh, I remember a time some years ago, it was in the 80s, where there was talk about, you know, TSR expected people to move through D&D in two years and, you know, enter and exit the industry. So if anything like that is same same true, you know, we might be losing a lot of those, but uh, also some of those are probably going on to other games. And definitely you mentioned mentioned, uh, Kickstarter. And I know that you've done a number of articles on it uh, in the past and, and they're just highlighting the growth and um, exposure that Kickstarter is giving people. And, uh, and I know, I, d- I don't think Indiegogo, Indiegogo is as popular, at least in the role-playing game world, but I mean, Kickstarter, boy, like uh, I think uh, Free League, one of those Swedish companies, they just did uh, a Kickstarter and it was like phenomenal how much uh, they received from it. Yeah, that was, that was the one ring Kickstarter and it clocked in at almost exactly $2 million USD. Um, I've been uh, tracking the Kickstarter since 2011, 2012, something like that. Uh, the first year I took note of it, I was very excited to see that there were some Kickstarters that were earning 10 or $20,000. That was amazing. And then the next year we had 10 or so that made $100,000. And uh, I forget if last year or the year before I recorded 46. Uh, I know last year I spent days recording everything, so it was quite a few. Um, And we've had half a dozen over a million dollars. Russ Morrissey over at InWorld just put together a list of all of the role-playing companies that have earned over a million dollars on Kickstarter, summing up their things. And he came up with 12, 20, I don't know. It was an amazing number, but uh, Kickstarter has evolved the industry in a number of ways. It's, uh, I think, made it easier for the uh, classic revivals that we've been seeing because they can communicate with the old fans who are not necessarily going into game stores anymore. It has certainly 
led to the international success of uh, companies like those Swedish companies and uh, uh, probably also uh, Ulysses Spiel, uh, who is uh, German with a North American um, uh, arm uh, and uh, Studio Agate, who is French. Uh, they would not have been able to uh, reach an international audience well without Kickstarter. I mean, we certainly saw companies in the 90s and Adats who tried and could not. Um, I think it's probably also uh, allowed for kind of the popularization of some of the indie things, you know, things that would have been published anyways, because uh, when you create an indie game, you know, you can make a, a few hundred copies, a thousand or something, uh, sell them simply. Um, but it's allowed some of those to become very popular and reach a lot of audience, which is probably going to change how the uh, overall industry is thinking about role-playing games as well, because they're seeing these new mechanics. And so with Dungeons and Dragons, just going, going back there for a second, I know I think next year is the 50th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons, if I'm not mistaken. And there's a lot of speculation of a 6E. Do you have any kind of hunch on where that's going to go? Yeah, they're we're, gonna actually just do still, the we're actually still a few years out. D&D &D was oh, out in January 1974. Um, okay. So uh, this year is the uh, 50th anniversary of Chainmail, uh, which oh, okay. was kind of the predecessor. Um, so who knows? Um, 60, I've heard people say it uh, most around, mostly on April 1st this year. Um, I, I, I would very much like not to see it because uh, I... I've, believe we have seen severe damage though at, from 3.5e and from 4e uh, and 5e has been greatly successful but only because it was undoing the damage of the last two. Um, you talked earlier about trends in, in role-playing games and I would say one trend that we have seen is companies destroying their product and their uh, uh, audience by uh, by releasing incompatible uh, new editions, either incompatible rule-wise or incompatible setting-wise. And so I would personally prefer that Wizards of the Coast not mess around with, you know, what is hopefully doing well for the industry and is clearly doing very well for them. And my guess would be that's probably going to be their inclination too. Um, I also do wonder if Wizards of the Coast could even do a 60 at this point if they wanted to, because one of the big news items that we were seeing probably throughout the tens was them cutting their staff again and again and again. And uh, when uh, 5e first came out, if you look back, several of those initial releases were actually done by uh, third parties. Uh, um, Green Ronin did one of the early adventure books. Uh, Sasquatch did one of the early adventure books. Uh, I think there was uh, one more. And so you go up to um, what was called Out of the Abyss. Uh, that far, and they were still depending on other people to do their products. So do they even have a team to do a 60 if they want? I have no idea, but uh, I, I hope we'll stick with 5e. Or if they do decide they need to do a new edition, that it will be something that remains compatible, uh, you know, maybe has some great improvements, but is something that will not uh, take the chances that 3, 5e, and 4e did. And then that probably leads into the boom and the bust of the industry, whether it's uh, cards or um, D20 running its course, or do you get a sense that it could happen again? Or is it one of those things that they're on solid footing now and the industry has grown and could sustain something like that? Well, I was uh, pretty solidly uh, uh, predicting that there was going to be a Kickstarter bust any time in the future from, you know, maybe 2012 to 2016 or so. That clearly didn't happen. And I do not think it is going to happen at this point. It seems to have become a solid part of the industry. Uh, the danger of the boom and bust cycle is that um, things are getting produced at levels higher than the consumers are actually using them. Um, it uh, comes, I think, one part from you know, collector fever, and one part from, you know, kind of a Pokemon-ish, gotta have them all. And so I, I mentioned three booms and busts in the uh, industry. The first one was only peripherally re related to the industry, and that was the black and white comic uh, boom and bust, which occurred in the 80s. Um, and I mentioned it because it affected some of the companies in the industry. It 
you know, impacted their distributors and that meant they ended up not getting money. Uh, the two big ones though were the CCG boom and bust in the 90s and the D20 boom and bust, which was pretty much 2003 and four. And I feel pretty solidly in both of those cases that things were being purchased at a level that was so far in excess of what it had been before that it was clearly in excess of how people were using them. I mean, I was buying $100 boxes of Magic the Gathering cards in the 90s and then Jihad cards and then Mythos cards before I started working there, uh, Wyvern cards, uh, uh, Holy Grail cards, and in any number of other ones that you have never heard of, SimCity cards, Illuminati. Um, and that was clearly in excess of my normal spending for role-playing. And I didn't do the same in the D20 boom because that's kind of when I was not very much involved in the industry. But I know a lot of people were going and buying everything they could for D20 until they couldn't anymore. Um, I don't think I'm seeing that now. Again, I was worried about for Kickstarter for a while because there certainly seemed to be people that were, uh, you know, talking about how they were, you know, backing tens of Kickstarters every month. Um, and I suspect that is still going on, but it doesn't seem to have busted. And if it hasn't by now, I don't think it's going to. I do not think there is any bust related to, to 5e uh, because they're producing such a, a low number of products that. I mean, they're not getting people to buy in excess. People instead are turning to the DMs Guild and other things. And it looks to me like those are, you know, kind of working normatively. So another boom and bust certainly could occur, but it's been 17 years now since the last one, except I kind of feel there was a boom and bust related to 4E. It's just not entirely clear how much that impacted the rest of the industry. Some, and I think it was for very different reasons that it was due to discontent as opposed to you know, over-purchasing. And then, you know, speaking of like the future and like the growth now, and it seems to be like, you know, more and more it's digital, probably driven a lot by the pandemic and, uh, you know, more people gaming online and that sort of thing. But do you see that shifting away from traditional like paper uh, book role-playing games? Or do you think it's always going to be that people want that book in their hand as a collector item or or just like a, something substantial? Um, uh, yes and, and no at, at different levels. Um, I, I think that uh, the electronic um, virtual tabletops have seen a great uh, you know, expansion due to the pandemic. And I think some of that will stick around. Uh, I think it's probably shown people how PDFs can be effective. Um, I'm very much a, a Paper, paper sort of person myself, but when I was running my last Pathfinder game, I was starting to, you know, pick up their cheap $10 core rulebook PDFs because it was just so convenient having it on my laptop, even if I had the books nearby, especially when I was running games somewhere that I had to bicycle to and I wouldn't have wanted to bring 100 pounds of books. Um, so I think we're seeing expansions to all of those. Um, but there really is something to being able to put a book down in the uh, middle of the table and to point at something in it. And there's very much something to be able to talk directly to someone. Uh, I do not expect that electronic books are electronic table topping will in any way threaten their physical um, uh, brethren until they become as good as that. And so like my electronic books, great for searching, but pretty terrible to, you know, like uh, page forward three pages, uh, often to just find something that I could easily look at, you know, the edge of a book and, and know where it is. And uh, tabletop gaming is relatively horrible compared to, uh, um, sorry, electronic uh, gaming is relatively horrible compared to tabletop gaming. Just, you know, our voices don't mold together well. They you know, when someone talks, it interrupts everyone else. You can't hear multiple people at once. Uh, it's very hard to show a, a tabletop. The, the virtual tabletops have been great. And I feel like they are a great alternative uh, in lots of situations where you can't do uh, tabletop gaming, including in the middle of a pandemic. But I'm pretty sure people are going to bounce right back to those tabletop games 
in the situations that they're able to as soon as the pandemic is over, as soon as everyone gets their vaccines, um, just because at the moment, at least it is, you know, better for communication and tabletop games are all about communication. I've been thrilled to be able to do board games with some of my friends from back in the Bay Area throughout the pandemic. And, you know, we set up Zoom and I set up Zoom on my laptop and I set up the game on my, my desktop. But still, we can't have the same type of conversations, especially side conversations that we could at a uh, uh, table. And I guess uh, one other kind of trend I would love to hear your thoughts on, and you've written on it, is diversity and inclusion um, within the industry and in, within games. And where's your sense on uh, how that's been going and received and uh, being implemented? Uh, I think it's uh, definitely been going. Uh, I feel like it's been received well by a good portion of it. And I feel like it's causing some um, arguments too, but I think it's very important that um, our industry has been very male dominated uh, and very white dominated. And I say that I'm white, you're white. We're talking to each other about diversity. Um, I think it's very important. I'm very excited that uh, uh, we are seeing games that can uh, you know, reach out to, to other people. Um, I thought the recent Call of Cthulhu supplement uh, about, you know, Harlem role-playing back in the day, really exciting because it's, you know, about culture that is not just white culture. Um, and so it's thrilling to see that type of thing. I would love to see that type of expansion more. I've been very happy to see, you know, role-playing companies worry about things as uh, simple as having more representation in iconic characters, which, you know, that's a trend that goes back 20 years, you know, with Wizards of the Coast and Pezo being some of the ones really leading the way in that. So it's very exciting to see all of that. Um, there are some areas where I think we're going to have to kind of figure out how do we look at these issues. Um, I know one of the big ones that came up last year, I think it was last year, uh, were questions about books like Oriental Adventures, which was a uh, you know 1985 D&D book about Asia that, you know, well, first of all, the uh, title is not appropriate anymore, but beyond that, it kind of mushed together all of the uh, various Asian mythologies and folklores into one composite. And, you know, there were like a couple of Japan uh, uh, analogs, a couple of China analogs, et cetera. And, that's the type of thing that we have to look at and say, A, what do we think of it now? And B, what do we think of the fact that it did exist 35 years ago? And, you know, it is part of the history. And so I think there's going to be a lot more work uh, figuring out what the uh, various boundaries are. But right now, we're at a position where we are kind of moving back against a lot of non-diversity and non-inclusiveness. And so we're gonna see a lot of push in that direction and it's, you know, for the good. We're just gonna to need to continue to see, how's it going? Okay, yeah. Um, and, I, and I think uh, what I look, reflect upon just what I was saying about earlier about, uh, you know, you, you kind of hid away Dungeons and Dragons, um, but within the gaming world, I think there's always, I always felt a lot of acceptance when you'd go to a convention and uh and you would see and meet other people and you were you were bonded by your love of the game so uh, i like to see that yeah i think conventions are a pretty good melting pot but i'm also reminded of what i was uh some of the things i learned when i was working on uh the platinum appendix for uh designers and dragons which was a little booklet that i did after the kickstarter for the evil hat uh versions that included uh, some articles that uh, either I had decided to write during the Kickstarter or that some people had asked to have written. Uh, and one of them was about women in the gaming industry. And some of the people that sponsored it were, you know, women who had been role-playing for, you know, 40 years, 30 years. And they said, oh, oh yeah, I, I remember the conventions back in the 70s. You know, my husband would go there and I would stay home and watch the children. So, you know, conventions, Definitely a great place to meet everyone, but also they were a place that 
might have been kind of self-selected for non-inclusiveness back in the 70s. And that is the type of thing we need to look at and say, is that still the case now? Are there ways that we can make sure that they are inclusive? And I think very importantly, in the last five or 10 years, we've also started to say, can we make sure they're safe? Yeah. The, um, the other uh, kind of more recent movement, probably like in the, maybe the, you've, it's probably longer, but it's really come to a point lately is the OSR movement and the retro clones. Um, and what's your kind of thoughts on that movement and have all the clones been done and what happens next? Uh, the OSR movement is amazing. Um, it is something that was kind of just peeking out of being a fandom when I wrote Designers and Dragons. And so it's not really in the printed books. It's mentioned here and there um, and kind of really exploded right about that time, which was about 10 years ago. Um, one of the things I find interesting is that it's kind of part of this long-term trend where people have constantly been going back and reinventing Dungeons and Dragons because it's you know the core game. And so in the 70s, you had people uh, producing uh, what they called VD&D games, variance D&D games. And so I recently uh, was writing a history on Ragnarok Games who did Isgarth, which uh, kind of is one of the legendary VD&D games. They started out as D&D and they'd usually add on spell point systems and they'd usually add on critical hits and fumbles and hit locations. And, you know, depending on how successful they were or weren't, uh, it would get further and further away from D&D. Uh, the Arduin Grimoire is the other one that's very well known from that area. So that was the 70s uh, and into the 80s. And then you got into the 90s uh, and you had desktop publishing, which uh, took off after the Mac came out in 1984. And suddenly uh, you'd had these um, barriers of entry into the role-playing industry, publishing getting higher and higher as books got better and better looking. And suddenly they dropped because yes, books were better looking, but anyone could you know, produce a book that was computer drafted and had pretty good graphics. Though now if you look back at some of the like curved boxes and stuff that were used in those early desktop publishing, they're not that great. And so you saw the fantasy heartbreakers. And this time, instead of going directly after the game systems for D&D and revamping them, they started going after the tropes of D&D and writing their own games, which were often very similar. Uh, and so Legendary Adventures and Fifth Cycle were the first two of those. They're pretty much unknown right nowadays. I, I think the only reason we really know about it uh, is because Ron Edwards wrote an article called Fantasy Heartbreakers and the uh, Adats saying, hey, they were all these great games. Almost everyone had great ideas, but because they were so closely tied to D&D, they didn't go anywhere. Um, but I feel like that was kind of the same trend. And then we get to the Adats and the Fantasy Heartbreakers they pretty much died out because of D20, because, you know, why do your own D&D game when you could just go do a D&D supplement legally and get a much bigger audience now? And some very clever people said, well, what if we use the uh, D20 license to go and reinvent these old games, which we can pretty much get to from what's legally allowed to us in uh, uh, the uh, uh, various uh, materials available under the OGL. And it's been very exciting to see all of this work and the retro clones, the retro clones aren't that exciting. And indeed when the first retro clone, which was Osric was made, it wasn't made to be exciting. I should say the pure retro clones aren't very exciting. They're just games. Some of them are very well presented, very well produced, but they're just games and they're just games that we've done, we've seen before. But what was exciting is that they allowed for the recreation of an industry of producing supplements for these games. And I just, I, I do find very exciting seeing all of these adventures that look just like the adventures that, you know, I excitedly paged through at Toys R Us, you know, when I was uh, young and they're new, they're exciting, they're, they're innovative, but they're using these old tropes and ideas and styles of artwork and all of that. And I also feel like the, the retro clones were a relatively small, um, step in the OSR movement. You say, are there things, more things to retro clone? Uh, yes, there are. And yes, there's also retro clones that you've probably uh, never heard of. Um, but the thing is that after just three or four years of that, people started saying, well, what if we took these retro clones and we did 
totally new things with these. And so uh, Stars Without Numbers, I think is probably one of the ones that's gotten the most success. It's clearly not D&D because it's a science fiction game, but it clearly is D&D. And so that I do find very exciting. These games that are not just, you know, very well-produced new editions of classic games, but ones that take those ideas and even those mechanics and expand them in different ways. And that's where the OSR is now, I feel, though. Um, I've written a few histories of the OSR for future books. And uh, one of the things I say there is no one agrees with what OSR is. Anything I say here about what OSR is, people will disagree with, except possibly if I say OSR is what you know, each individual person believes OSR is. And so some people would say it is just those retro clones. Some people would say it's just retro clones of D&D. And some people would say it's this expansive industry that includes all these reinventions of these classic games. And uh, some of these would say it's even totally new games with very modern mechanics like Shadow of the Demon Lard by Robert Schwab that feel like old school games. So, you know, what, what of those actually is the OSR? Everyone has a different answer, but there is a lot of very exciting innovation there. I really love what's being produced for the uh, category of play. I feel like there's three different um, main uh, kind of streams of development going on right now in role-playing. There's our mainstream games, which we've always had. There's the indie games that we've already talked about, and there's the OSR games, and there's you know some cross-development ideas being kicked from one to the other, and it's just very exciting to see so much different game design going on, and you know possibly cross-pollinating each other. For sure, and I mean I think that speaks to like the independent game designers that are out there now, with the barrier of entry being so low that uh, you know whether it's distribution or Kickstarter or or the technology that we can use to develop these smaller independent games that are a niche so to speak but they're able to find an audience because the, the platforms are allowing it and I guess one question I have uh, that since you've seen so many years and the patterns and the cycles and that kind of thing is there any tips that you could give to uh, independent designers that are, might be watching this what to avoid pitfalls common mistakes <laughs> Uh, I, I might say, see if you can find someone else who's willing to do the business part for you. Um, I, I think probably the easiest thing to do is to design a great game and to not market it properly. I mean, got drive through, you upload it there. That's enough, right? Not enough. Um, I think I could say more generally, the most important thing I have learned in life about creative endeavors is to do something that you totally love. Uh, I, I have been writing these histories for Designers and Dragons because I totally love them. The research, you know, is great. Uh, sometimes I tell my wife, I can't believe I just found out this thing. Or I've been, uh, you know, trying to figure out who this person is and who this person is. And they turn out to be the same person writing under slightly different names. <laughs> she says, yes, honey. Um, but but I, I do it because I love it. And, and I think... Uh, that's the biggest thing you can do. Um, if you are doing something because you think it will be successful, it won't be. Uh, if you are doing something because you think it's the appropriate thing to do, you're not necessarily going to do it great. But if you do something that excites you, and that can be anything, it can be your totally new game, it can be adventures for your favorite system, it can be a book on the history of the role-playing industry, whichever of those it is, that, that is the one you should do. Well, I know in just talking with you and setting up uh, this uh, call today, I kept thinking, boy, you are living your best life. At least I, th <laughs> I think you are. So, you know, hats off to you for uh, pursuing it. Uh, obviously, it's been, uh, I, I've got all four books here and, uh, and I've sought them out because I was like, as soon as I found the first one and I couldn't find the 70s one, I had to go hunt it down. And so I, Anyways, I just think uh, the history that you put together is amazing. And uh, I think if anybody has not had a chance to read them, um, like I, I said before, you can get them on uh, DriveThruRPG. Uh, I think Evil Hat still has a few hard copies that you can get. Uh, Amazon's got a few in different areas. So I uh, encourage you to go out there and, and look. But before I do that, I 
what is next in, uh, and I'll put all these uh, links in the uh, show notes and on the video description, but what is next for you, Shannon? What, what is going on? Yeah. So uh, just briefly on the books, um, some of the books are out of print. I, I don't know which ones, but I remember being told maybe the eighties, maybe the seventies went out of print a year or two ago or now. Uh, they do tend to still be available through Amazon. They're starting to go up in price over the $20 cover price. Uh, but if people do want to get the current books, my best suggestion is drive through RPG because not only do they have the PDFs, but they have pods of all four and a half books, the four books plus the uh, um, platinum appendix. And uh, the, hard, the, hard, the pods are hardcover. They're the only hardcover ones. They're actually what I use for my reference. I, I have my paperbacks here, though they're starting to uh, get a little flimsier in the humidity of Hawaii. The hardcovers are, are good. And so if you want to print copy and you can't find them, are they're too expensive at Amazon, look for the pods at drive through So what I'm working on now, uh, I finished uh, the original books in 2013, I think. Uh, and I, I spent the next seven years or so trying to figure out how I could have time to do more histories. Uh, and I started on histories for four or five or six companies. I was never able to finish them up. Uh, I don't know. I was starting to do more technical writing. I've been doing uh, blockchain-related technical writing for several years now. Um, and uh, I just stopped having the energy to do those. Last year, just before the pandemic, we moved to Hawaii. Uh, I let go of my uh, full-time job working for Skodos and for uh, RPGNet. Uh, I cut back to just a few days a week of technical writing with the idea being that I was going to sit down and work on my own stuff at a desk every day, even though there's really nice beaches and hiking trails there. And uh, I think last May, last June was when I was finally able to finish the switch over. And since then, I have been working, uh, writing histories and uh, my new work for uh, RuneQuest three days a week, uh, sometimes a little more. Um, what I am... <laughs> I, I currently have, um, I think, eight books, nine books planned. So I am uh, writing new histories. Uh, I have three and a half volumes planned that I, I am calling Designers and Dragons. Two books are called The Lost Histories. The first one's going to be the 70s and 80s, and the second one's going to be the 90s and the odd odds. And these are all going to be companies that Either I wrote about very briefly in the original books, what I call mini histories there, or I didn't, didn't write about it at all. Uh, and so I told you I recently wrote on Ragnarok Enterprises. That's a 1979 company. Um, and uh, this uh, month I am working on Adventure Games, which is a 1981 company, and Patrick Stevens, which is a uh, mass publisher of books that was founded in the 50s or something. They put out uh, one role-playing book, which is this one, uh, which uh, if you grew up like I did in, in the 80s, uh, you saw it everywhere. And that's because it was a uh, choice of the science fiction book club. And so I would suspect it is one of the role-playing books right after D&D that had the uh, most uh, distribution in the 80s. It's not necessarily great. I got the impression that it was never fully play-tested, but it's neat, even if it's not great. Uh, I, I like what I've seen of it. And, and I've really enjoyed writing the history. So that's going to be the lost histories, two volumes that have, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 uh, brand new histories in them for companies you haven't seen before. Uh, the third book, Designers and Dragons, is going to be the Tens, which is the one that I have gotten tons of requests from for about five years ago. Now, I think maybe more. It could be that we finished the Kickstarter in 2014, got everything released, and someone said, so when's the 10s coming out? So the answer is hopefully at the same time as the two volumes of Lost Histories. Uh, I have written, I think, five articles for it so far. Four of those are the Swedish companies that we kind of talked about a few times, Riot Minds, Jan Ringen, um, uh, Free League, and uh, Helmgast. Uh, and uh, the fifth one is Monty Cook Games. Um, there's got to be at least 15 more in there. I'm pretty sure maybe more. So at this point, I've written 120,000 words or so among those three books. That's one book worth. So I have 
two more to write and I've been doing it for about a year. So that sounds to me like I'll have first drafts of those in 2023 or so. So those are the first three books. Uh, and we put out the platinum appendix with um, the original ones. I'm hoping we can put out something that I'm calling the chromatic appendix with uh, these ones. The chromatic appendix uh, is my collection of all of the online articles that I have written at RPGNet and that did not appear in some of the books. So these are all kinds of weird and wacky things like I like drawing charts showing how everything connects. And so I have a big chart of, you know, the 20, 30, 40 companies that Chaosium's influence. I have some updates for some of the histories uh, in the original book. So uh, that I hope will go out and be a whole new Designers and Dragons Kickstarter in 2023. Second thing I'm think working on, which is another four books is what I call the TX TSR Codex. Um, one of the reasons I didn't have time for writing new Designers and Dragons after I finished the original set is I started working with Drive-Thru RPG and Wizards of the Coast to write histories of D&D products because they started releasing them all on D&D Classics, which is now the DM's Guild. And they wanted short little histories for each one. I think they asked me 250 words, you know, maybe 500. And so I started writing long histories for all of the books as they produced them. And so I was writing for several years, two or three of these every week uh, in which I'd research as much as I could about the product, what the designers had said to as usual, not just talk about the content, but if it was possible to talk about the history and the decisions and the things like that. And so I wrote those for uh, the D&D Classics website for about five years. Um, Kevin Culp was writing them with me. We kind of split things down the middle of 2E. So I wrote AD&D 1E, OD&D, Basic D&D, and uh, the Forgotten Realms and maybe the generic stuff. I don't remember for AD&D 2E. And he wrote the other half of AD&D 2E and then 3E, uh, which was what was out at the time. And so eventually they got everything out and I had about half a million words that I'd written on these. And uh, drive Through role-playing was kind enough to let me keep the ownership of all of uh, the things I wrote for them. They published them under license and my intent was always so I could publish them in books. So I'm working on those now. And the first four books are gonna cover OD&D, AD&D first edition and basic D&D. Um, and uh, that'll be basically uh, 1974 through 1989 and then a little more for the basic D&D and Mistar and Alliance. So I have a book and a half of those done and I'm hoping to have all of those for, for the, uh, 50th anniversary we were talking about uh, in 2024, just because it seems like a great time to release. Yeah. I think I'll actually have them done before that. But if I sit on for a little longer so we can put them out for that big release date, then I can keep working on the newer stuff and have better cross references. Um, so those are kind of the main eight books. I'm also working on a book on uh, Michael Moorcock's writing, which I've been working on for five or six years. And every once in a while I finish a book and I write uh, few more pages and then I put another book on my uh, pile to read. So those are the big projects right now. And, and the one other one is, uh, I should say, by the way, though the Designers and Dragons Lost Histories in the Tens are intended for publication, people can see them right now on Patreon. Uh, that's kind of what's keeping me on an honest schedule and to make sure I'm at my desk and not at the beach, uh, because I promise people at least one history a month and have published one to three a month since then. Um, and uh, also over at RPGNet, even though I'm not uh, editorially involved with the site in any way, uh, I still publish my columns there and that's the Advanced Designers and Dragons column. And that kind of continues to be what I call this orthogonal material uh, where I talk about things that aren't company oriented like uh, Designers and Dragons. And uh, my goal is to publish one a month there and it's been about one and a half. So this month I published another one of my big charts uh, showing all of the major lawsuits that TSR was involved with. Cause that's, that was an interesting one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I, I grew up of an age where uh, TSR quickly became the enemy to a, a lot of us in, in, yeah. in, in the fandom. Uh, and so much of that was because of their litigiousness and it was interesting recording all of that. The, the much nicer one, which is I, I think probably gonna come out next week, I've sent it to the editor already, uh, talks about their licenses for computer games and for miniatures and has a few more charts to show those. 
next month, I'm working on things related to uh, Dave Arneson, uh, who we remember his passing this month. And we also remember his first Blackmore game probably this month. Um, and so I've got uh, looks at a couple of the histories that uh, people have uh, done in recent years, including um, the true history of D&D Blackmore, Secrets of Blackmore. I fortunately have all of this by my desk here. Um, so that's one of the things I'm writing for Advanced Designers and Dragons and that, that continues. Uh, so I think those are the main projects right now. Like I said, a couple of just my- Just a few, just a few on yeah, your plate there. A couple of my days every week go to uh, technical writing and, and as much as I can, the rest, I keep up on the rest of this. Oh, yeah. and uh, the Elf book is, is the last one. I guess that's the 10th book. Uh, Elf Pack, uh, it's for Chaosium. Uh, it's based upon about 25 years of work uh, and discussions, uh, first with Greg Stafford from some notes from Ken Rolston. And uh, it was what I was writing about for Trade Talk and for other uh, Glorantham fanzines like Hearts and Glorantha. So uh, my deadline for that is September. So hopefully that will be done by September. Well. You've done incredible work up till now, and I'm excited to see what you're doing in the future. And uh, once again, go to Patreon Designers and Dragons, and you can get in at the entry level of $3 all the way up to 12 and you get insider information on the, the $12 level. So well worth the money um, for all this great content. So Shannon, thank you for joining me uh, today. And uh, I look forward to seeing a lot more of your work in the future. Thank you. It's my pleasure talking with you, Gary.